I'm Carol Coletta, and this is Night Cities. The Atlanta Beltline is a massive development turning 22 miles of historic railroad corridors that circle downtown into a network of parks, trails, and transit to link 45 of the city's neighborhoods. It is among the largest and most wide-ranging urban development and mobility projects in the U.S., and it all began with a master's thesis by a student at Georgia Tech, Ryan Gravel. Ryan now a senior urban designer at Perkins and Will in the firm's Atlanta office, is our guest today on Night Cities. Ryan, you've told the story hundreds of times about how the idea for the Atlanta Beltline was born, but tell it again. Uh, well, I, I spent a year abroad my senior year in Paris, and it really changed the way that I, in college I was studying architecture. And it really changed the way I saw the world because within a month I'd lost 15 pounds and was in the best shape of my life because I was walking everywhere and um, eating fresh food from the market and really changed the way, fundamentally changed the way that I saw, you know, the relationship between um, the places that we live and our, and our quality of life and health. And so when I went back to school for graduate school, I was really fascinated with the role of the city and specifically the role of infrastructure in creating the opportunities to live, that the kind of infrastructure we matters to the way that we live our lives. And by the time I got to, I did a joint degree with architecture and city planning. And by the time I got to do my thesis, to develop a thesis project, I needed uh, something that spanned both design and planning. Um, I was kind of obsessed with uh, railroads and, um, and, and interested in the uh, role of transit and the need for transit in Atlanta. And so I came up with this idea to repurpose this 22-mile loop of old railroads that circle downtown Atlanta into a new uh, transit way. And then along the way, revitalize the communities, many of which had seen, you know, 40 years of disinvestment and depopulation. And repurpose uh, literally 4,000 acres of old abandoned industrial land that had been sort of left behind by suburbanization in the second half of the 20th century. And so that was the sort of idea to, to repurpose this corridor with transit, um, activate it um, as an incentive for redevelopment and revitalization. And, you know, that was it. And I put the, I put the uh, idea on a shelf like everybody else, never imagining that we would ever build it. Went to work for a design firm. We were doing mixed-use urban infill type projects in Atlanta because the city was starting to grow fast, people moving back into the city. And we were working on this one project, a 20-acre site that was going to nearly double the population of the adjacent neighborhood. And we we're trying to decide, do you put the parking garage up against the abandoned railroad, or do you orient the project toward the railroad, you know, to, hoping that it would become something better one day? And I was telling my coworkers about this idea I had in school for that very railroad. And they thought it was really cool because they lived in neighborhoods along the way. You know, a lot of developers were coming in and buying these big tracts of land and redeveloping them. We were doing a lot of that kind of work. And so we started talking to people about it. And the more people we talked to, the more people fell in love with this idea. Eventually, we sent out a letter with about 50 letters to the mayor and the governor and all the regional planning agencies saying, telling people about this idea. We got some letters back saying, nice idea, good luck with that, you know. <laughs> But um, got a great response from one person, Kathy Woolard. She was on uh, the city council, District 6, and chair of the transportation committee, which is why she got the letter. Um, usually they deal with Atlanta's airport, but she was interested in public transit. And she had just had a meeting of all the regional planning agencies 
asking, what are you doing for the city of Atlanta, which is only a tenth of the regional population? Everybody sort of came in with their ideas, and they were about moving people from way outside of town into downtown and back home at, at the end of the day, not really for people who live in the city, who are more likely to want it, more likely to ride it, more likely to be willing to pay for it, have been paying for it for 30 years through MARTA at that time, and a large proportion of people who are dependent on transit to get around because they can't afford a car. There really wasn't anything for them, and she was frustrated by that, but that was the end of the meeting. And literally that day, she left that meeting, went back to her office, and this letter was on her desk. And she thought, wow, this is cool. This is for people in the city. This does what we've been trying trying to think about. And so she called us in, and we told her more about the project, and she said, let's see what happens. And so she called it. She hosted a town hall meeting in her district in a church basement. Um, She had the same regional agencies come in and talk about their plans. And then we came in at the end literally with my thesis uh, slides and uh, maps and stuff and uh, presented this idea. And the neighborhood just really fell in love with the idea. We did a few more meetings like that. And, you know, built on that momentum. And then that fall, she was, this is the summer of 2001. That fall, she was elected city council president. And we took the conversation citywide. And for two and a half years, we went to every neighborhood group, every neighborhood planning unit, every church, school, rotary club, you know, anybody who wanted to hear about it, we would go to talk to them. Literally, I was doing three or four public meetings a week for two and a half years, and so was Kathy, and so was her staff, and so was a handful of volunteers. And we built this amazing grassroots movement in support of this project that really got the attention, of course, of the other elected officials and regional planners. And, you know, we really just built this momentum that people couldn't ignore, and the project started to take on a life of its own. When we went around to talk about the project, we were talking about three primary things. Already, the the vision had grown um, beyond just transit to also include a Maltese trail and greenway along the corridor. There was transportation, both transit and trail, for the full 22-mile loop. It connects to existing trans or existing transit network. It connects to an emerging regional trail network. The second part was economic development. So, you know, managing growth in the neighborhoods that were already seeing it and attracting growth in the neighborhoods that hadn't seen it in a while. And then the third part was uh, connecting existing green spaces and cultural facilities, um, destinations like the Martin Luther King Jr. Historic District and the Botanical Gardens and the zoo, the Jimmy Carter Library, stuff like that. Um, And so that was the vision that was building this amazing momentum. And we developed this cool coalition between community organizers, people who were fighting for their communities to make them better places and had been doing for a generation. The second part were developers who were interested in taking advantage of the growth in the city and looking for opportunities. And then uh, the last were sort of nonprofit environmental type groups who were looking to build on their mission, whether it was environmental advocacy, you know, changing environmental conditions, growth patterns, new park space, pedestrian housing, those kinds of things. And and together, those groups really built this amazing uh, coalition and that couldn't be ignored. And, And what's cool about that is that then the vision itself started to grow. So we took on in 2004, the Trust for Public Land came in and said, you know, that's cute that you guys want to connect 700 acres of existing parks, but what about 1,400 acres of new parks? And the mayor, Franklin, at that time said, what better place for affordable housing than along this transit corridor where people can afford to not also have not have a car, which is unique in Atlanta, would be unique in Atlanta. And so now the, the project is the largest, largest affordable housing initiative in the city's history. 
Um, and that's great for all the new housing, but what about, you know, the communities who are there now who are in fixed, lower fixed income? How do we help them stabilize those communities? So tools are being put in place for that. A public art, you know, community said, what, what better place for public art to uh, enrich the lives of residents, but also be this great 22-mile public art park that, that connects the city and, and gives people another reason to come visit Atlanta. Public health people got involved and said, you know, we know that communities that are adjacent to transcendent trails are healthier communities because they encourage people to walk, uh, reducing the risk of obesity, diabetes, heart disease, those kinds of things. And there was a health impact assessment done in 2007. Trees Atlanta, our local nonprofit that is restoring the tree canopy, you know, came in and said, we want to build a 22-mile arboretum to not only teach uh, kids and people about the importance of the tree canopy, but also other urban ecological issues like stormwater and invasive species. And so you can see the visions continues to expand. And of course, it's continuing to expand today around issues like community food networks and green building practices and equity and affordability. And so it's pretty cool to see that sort of happening. Um, meanwhile, you know, we were able to leverage that momentum to create a primary public funding source for the project. It's a tax increment finance district. In Georgia, we call it a tax allocation district. That'll generate over a billion dollars uh, for the project and building on that momentum. So, you know, the project just sort of took on a life of its own and um, it's now being built by a new organization called Atlanta Beltline, Inc. Um, there's another nonprofit called, partner called the Atlanta Beltline Partnership. I'm on the board of that. Um, and the project is moving forward. We're still in the early stages of implementation. We've built about seven miles of trails and about four new parks. But the East Side Trail, which is sort of the signature element of that trail, it's two miles long on the east side of town. And it's just, it's an unbelievable success. Um, the project generally, we've spent about $350 million to date since 2005 on the project. And in the same time period, in the same area, we've seen over a billion dollars of private sector development. And that's during the recession. So the economic impact is is. Uh, really dramatic and pretty exciting to watch. You mentioned the uh, remarkable coalition that you put together to support the Beltline. If you deconstruct the Beltline into a formula for ideas that galvanize broad swaths of communities in the way yours has, what, what would be in that formula? I think what the Beltline did for the, the communities along the way was it gave them a vision that was brighter than what they saw through their car windshield. They didn't really have a vision for themselves. They were in the midst of change. Um, the city was changing. It, the city had lost population in the 70s and 80s. By the late 90s, it was growing faster than many of the suburban counties. And the in-town communities were not really used to dealing with that growth. And they saw what was happening, and they saw a lot of change. And it was good in lots of ways, but it was scary in other ways. And they saw the Beltline as a way to sort of manage that change. So what's remarkable to me is that they really embraced it. Instead of fighting change, they embraced change to become the places that they wanted to be. And they made it happen. You know, they sort of made it their own project. And, you know, we never would be talking about this project if, it, if they hadn't embraced it in that way. It, was, it really was driven by them. And this vision and expansion of the idea that I'm talking about is not external to the communities. It's coming out of the communities. And so they sort of added to it the sort of richness of life that's required to become, you know, the kind of places that, that they wanted to live. Um, they were empowered in that process because they owned the vision. 
there were several examples where there were threats to the vision or direction of the project's implementation really changing. And the community came out forcefully and not fighting against the project to kill it, but actually fighting for the vision that they had built in the beginning. And and that's happened uh, several times and it's pretty exciting to watch. So I think that that the empowerment and ownership and authorship of the idea and the vision from the community is a really critical part of why we're building it and also an, a pretty amazing lesson to start to think about how it might apply to other other projects in other places. Ryan, your answer begins to hit at some of the challenges that the Beltline has encountered. Uh, you know, were there times you thought it would be derailed? And what have been the, the biggest challenges to putting together a project like this and, and committing to the original vision? I think that some of the biggest challenges are um, funding. You know, in Georgia, we don't have a history of paying, um, investing much in, in public transportation in particular, public space. So we're learning. There's a big learning curve there. Um, the city of Atlanta is certainly leading that charge, and the Beltline's a big part of that. So it's inter- it's fun to watch that change, but it's certainly a, a bit of an obstacle in terms of finding the appropriate funding to build it. You know, I mentioned the sort of challenges to the project. Physically, a developer bought the northeast corridor section to four miles of the railroad uh, back in 2005, and, and I really thought the community was going to kill the project because they objected to what he was proposing. But they really fought, turned around and fought for their vision, which I think was really powerful. I think the biggest challenge for us really, though, is issues of equity and affordability. From the very beginning, I hate the word gentrification, but you know, because it's sort of vague and controversial. But if we speak more directly about what's embedded in that, the, the fear of displacement and that and that everybody will be able to benefit, I think that because the project came from communities, all the different kinds of communities along, around the corridor, including uh, lower income communities, they were a part of that vision too. They just wanted to be around uh, when it came. And so they were excited and they were part of that momentum uh, to make it happen, but now as it's as it begins to happen, and we are see, and we see the the challenges of change, you know, increased values, increased uh, rents and taxes. We need to make sure that we follow through and put the tools in place to to help people stay. But because the project includes people in that vision, we're we're actually obligated to support them if we want to call the Beltline a success. And so because those communities were part of the vision, the agencies that are implementing it really are obligated to help them and, and are doing it. We have some challenges, again, in Georgia because we don't have a, a history of regulation and investment in this arena either. But it is changing the way that we do things and, and starting to create new policies and, and opportunities to help people. And that's a very current issue. We're dealing with that right now um, as the economy really comes back and surges forward, especially in the city, we're starting to see increased need for that. But it's driving uh, an elevated conversation about it that's really um, exciting to see. What do you see as some of the most promising tools for maintaining uh, affordability? Oh, you know, I'm not a financial expert. My my understanding of finance really ends uh, pretty quickly here. The tax increment finance district that I mentioned 15% 15% of that will go to affordable housing trust fund. So that's a huge investment for us. 
there are, we've also created a community land trust collaborative, which is covers the entire city, but has a focus on the Atlanta Beltline, which is pretty a model in and of itself. Within Atlanta Beltline Inc., there's a housing director who's looking at um, leveraging existing tools for um, people, you know, tax breaks and things like that that are already in place for people. So, you know, helping communicate those those opportunities to to the community, I think, is also important. You know, I think that there are probably other things that we can do. It's going to take an elevated conversation around it um, that will create some political will to make it happen. But I think we're there. We have we do have some challenges. Part of it, which is zoning, the inclusive zoning is hard here because the zoning is already maxed out and developers don't need much incentive to build what the market will bear. So we're working on it. <laughs> what do you wish you had known when you started? <laughs> That's a tough question because I, I mean, this has been, you know, it's been the last 15 years of my life and that's a long time to, uh, you know, I've sort of grown up in a lot of ways with it. I've certainly learned a lot about the role of the public and the power of community in this process. And, you know, I think that if I'd known what I know now, we would have been even more aggressive back in the beginning, but I'm, I got no regrets. We're, we're doing it. It's pretty amazing. There was a point where in the early days where, I didn't really think that we were going to do it. You know, I didn't really think that we believed that we were going to build it. I just thought we were having an interesting conversation. And this was like a year and a half into this. But I, we had called people to come to a meeting at the Atlanta Regional Commission to advocate for the project and get it on their transportation priority list. And I had gone to sort of say we were asking people to make a, a public comment on the record. And so I was preparing, you know, nervously in the corner to sort of figure out what I was going to say. And I was standing behind these two women, and they were talking about our project. Now, our project is this 22-mile loop, and our project connects 45 neighborhoods, and our project does this or that. And I had no idea who they were, and they were talking about our project. And it hit me at that point, the power of, of the public really owning a vision like that and owning an idea that it was our project. And that that would really drive the political leaders and and everybody else to sort of fall in line and, and implement that vision. And that was a, I mean, that's a, an enormously important lesson. You are writing a book on the cultural side of infrastructure. What's what's the central idea you're writing about, Ryan? I had some ideas about the re- the relationship between infrastructure and and our way of life before. That's what the Atlanta Beltline, my original thesis, was sort of built on. Um, but now, you know, we see it already. It's being built and it's validating everything that we always said it would do. You know, you see people walking on the Beltline getting their groceries. They're walking home with grocery bags or, you know, riding their bike to work in a way that you really couldn't do in Atlanta before. And so it's really changing the way that people are living their lives and, and businesses are opening on the corridor and all this stuff. So um, it's sort of validating a lot of those ideas. I work at this design firm, Perkins & Will, and we've been working on the project itself, doing some design work, but also looking at what are the lessons from this that can translate to other cities, and also what are other cities doing that are equally transformational. And when you look across the country, there's amazing things happening um, everywhere, um, You know, from everything from the High Line, the beautiful but very small High Line transforming the west side of Manhattan, to the LA River, you know, 51-mile sort of vast and unruly river that there's been a grassroots movement there since the 80s to redefine, you know, what the future of Los Angeles is going to be. And and, what, and the progress they've made is really compelling and exciting. 
because it's doing what the Beltline is doing also. It's not only changing the physical form of the city, it's changing the way that we think about the city. And so you look at all those things happening and, and you see the Beltline as part of a movement that's happening where people are sort of taking control of their own destiny. You know, they're sort of uh, taking their future in their own hands and, and, and coming up with ideas that are driving a new kind of way of life. And so the book is about, you know, um, telling that story, talking about the relationship between infrastructure and the way we live our lives. It tells the Beltline story in the process and connects it to these other ideas and then looks at the future of sprawl. And I grew up in the suburbs of Atlanta, and, and it's amazing as I've been writing it, I've learned so much about myself. You know, I, I didn't realize before I'm a planner, you know, but I, and I talk a lot about urban sprawl, but I didn't realize that my own history is the, is the story of sprawl. My parents moved our family to Metro Atlanta from Louisiana um, in the 1970s to take advantage of the booming economy of Metro Atlanta that was being built on these, these highways that, that Atlanta is really known for now. We bought a house in a neighborhood that was incentivized by our perimeter highway. My dad took a job at an engineering firm designing pump stations and wastewater treatment plants for the booming, uh, sprawling economy of the region. And, you know, I went to the mall. We never went downtown. And, you know, it's just it's it's crazy to see that my own story is sort of embedded in this relationship between infrastructure that if we build highways then we're going to get one kind of way of life and if we build other kinds of infrastructure we end up with other outputs and the point is not that to say that one is wrong or one is right or you know that we have it's an either or but that we should just be more conscious about those relationships and that we should embed ideas about our quality of life in the decisions we make about infrastructure and so the book sort of captures some of that and looks ahead to how we might change the way that we do things. Brian, I can't wait to read it. Thanks so much for what you've Thank done you. in Atlanta, and thanks for being with us on Night Cities. Great. Thank you so much, Carol. It's an honor to talk to you. Ryan Gravel is senior designer at Perkins & Will. You can follow us on Twitter at hashtag Night Cities and at C. Coletta. Find out first when new conversations are posted every Wednesday by signing up for our newsletter at nightfoundation.org forward slash features forward slash Night Cities. You've been listening to Night Cities. I'm Carol Coletta.